Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All on. Let me ask you, who woke up today and felt like today is a day of destiny? Well, in the prayer meeting before the service, we definitely felt like that was going to happen. Maybe, maybe not after Eurovision last night. Who, who watched it? Who watched it? I didn't. I didn't, actually. Uh, but I heard we didn't do very well. Um, who woke up with a wonder for what God has for them today? Turn to someone next to you and say, today is the day of destiny. But it really is. And today I want to show you that it is. All the things we've sung about, we've sung a line, I was breathing but not alive. All the things we've declared and prayed are all so that we can wake up each and every day knowing that you are alive for purpose. My name is Rob and I'm one of the life group leaders here at Redeemer. If today is your first time, then a special welcome from me. We're in the middle of our series on Ephesians, and if you've missed any of the previous sermons on Ephesians 1, then can I encourage you to go back to listen to them via the website. Also, a reminder that these daily devotional studies put together by Dave Smith are available, and they're a great tool to help as we go through the book of Ephesians together. This week, we are looking at the first half of Ephesians 2 which I've given the title, Alive for Purpose, we are going to hear from a guy named Paul who wrote a letter to the Christians living in Ephesus, a large cosmopolitan city, uh, not too dissimilar to Colchester, about living a transformed life. If you think you are too far from God and what you have done is so bad that he could never forgive you, then let me tell you about Paul. He believed his destiny was to go against Jesus and all the people who followed his teaching. He was zealous, but for all the wrong reasons. And he discovered true purpose in an encounter with God that turned his life around and made him zealous for God. These verses focus on the amazing transformation that takes place when we become a Christian. Now, in a room like this, there may be people who are here for the first time and hearing this message, others who don't follow Jesus, some who may even be angry at God for various things, like Paul was. Today is an invitation for you. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow on as I read these verses, and they should also be up on the screen. Ephesians 2, verse 1 reads, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Some great text in there. Now, when I was first given this as a passage, I realized it's basically the story of the gospel. And I was wondering, how in the world am I going to expound on Paul's incredible writing in this letter? So how about I just read it again and then we all go home? (laughs) Only joking, although a few of you looked a bit happy at that idea. Um, So I've split these first 10 verses into three sections. The first three verses detail the extent of our ruin, a portrait of who we are before we came to Christ. And as you can see, it doesn't make for a very very pretty picture. It starts off negative with a pretty somber image of the fall. And then the next four verses describe the wonder of God's remedy and what it now looks like to be made alive in Christ. And finally... Paul outlines the demand for a response. As a result of this amazing transformation we have in Christ, orchestrated fully by God, he calls forth the need for us to respond. In these verses, Paul outlines the before and the after. Have you ever watched any makeover shows? Maybe DIY SOS or 60-minute makeover? A particular favorite of mine is Homes Under the Hammer. Anyone seen that one? Anyone like that one? It's usually on mid-morning during the week, which means, of course, I don't get to watch it that much. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it basically showcases homes that are bought at auction and then done up by property developers. Now, it's a great program because we start by seeing this unloved, shabby, run-down home with bits falling off the wall and mold everywhere. And people come along and spend a bit of time and money and effort to make it new, to give it a new lease of life and make it look brand new. And I don't know about you, but my favorite bit is at the end with the before and after shot, when they pan around the room as it looked before, and they make it, they're very good at making it look very dark and dingy and grayscaled, and then suddenly, whoosh! It looks amazing, clean, bright, everything. Everyone is like, oh, wow, what a transformation. Well, this is a bit like what we see in these verses. So let's start with the before, the extent of our ruin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Tom brought a word of being whitewashed tombs, but dead inside. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking here about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. But what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it means to be cut off or separated from God, who is the source of all life. This is Paul's way of describing our condition before we came to Christ. Not many of us tell our salvation testimony that way, do we? But Paul insists that this is true. What we can learn from this is that we can be physically alive in all the ways that science and medicine would tell us, but we can still be dead and unresponsive towards God's goodness. And why? Because of our transgressions or trespasses, which basically mean disobedience to the law. What this text says is that we're not just far from God in his bad books, 
in need of patching up or sleepy, being needing to woken up or sick in need of healing, but spiritually dead. Not so much in need of medicine, but in need of a miracle. I wonder if any of us here today feel like this. And we see this in our world with an obsession with zombie films. Who here like zombie movies? It's okay to admit, I have seen a few. Um, one of my favorites when I was younger was I Am Legend. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. It's quite an old one now, starring Will Smith. Um, I remember the first time I saw it in the cinema, um, it was when I was a teenager, hiding behind my hands, because there's quite a lot of jumpy, jumpy bits in places. But anyway, my point is, here we see zombies, dead people, who are alive, but sla slaves to the things that control them, living out their cravings, i.e. trying to destroy other living people, walking around, but dead inside, most of them destined for death. This is an imperfect picture of what Paul is referring to here. But we were dead like zombies, self-seeking, self-satisfying, in need of a miracle. Now, in the film, it's Will Smith's job to try to find a remedy or a cure, something that will save the zombies from their depravity, their horrible torture they live in, and rescue them from their terrible fate. And we'll come on to how that relates to us in a bit. Before we can understand the amazing news of spiritual resurrection and what this transformed life is all about, we need to understand or be reminded of the state we were in before we came to Christ, that some of us here today may still be in. Verse 2 begins to describe this and says, We follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What is Paul on about here? Some translations say, prince of the power of the air. John Piper's teaching is helpful on this. If you think about it, air is where we live. Air is everywhere. Between heaven and earth is the realm of air. Sometimes we say things like, there's excitement in the air. What we mean is that excitement seems to be gripping everybody. Its influence is so widespread that it must simply be in the air. This is Paul's point. The influence of the power he mentions in verse 2 is so persuasive that it can be called the power of the air. Air is everywhere. Air is in our homes, air is in our workplaces, air is in our schools, and our enemy is everywhere. There is no doubt that the ruler of the kingdom of the air who is referring to is the devil. There is a being who rules over the authority of the air. As we go around living our lives, there is so much demonic influence around us. Have you ever thought about that? Verse 3 says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Now, cravings, most of us know what we crave, whether that's food, drink, power, control, sex, money, fame, intelligence, or even the craving to be loved. We all have things we crave, but we can either try to be gratified by things of the flesh, or we can be satisfied by things of the spirit. Paul, three, Paul says in verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It is part of our sinful nature. Most of us think of sin as a set of bad things we do. Adultery, stealing, lying, watching Love Island. But it's a condition of the heart. It was in our nature. It's not that we do bad things that make us bad. 
We do bad things because we are bad. All we did before Christ made us alive, all we did was sin. It was in our nature. And it's all sin if it wasn't done for the glory of God. Romans 14 verse 23 says, Everything that does not come from faith is sin. When we think of sins, immediately we think of things we do that we know don't glorify God. But we're also forgetting about the things we failed to do that we ought to have done. We usually think of this in terms of sins of commission, things that we do that we shouldn't. But it's not just that. We, it's not just that we are selfish and we steal and we do things to hurt others, but we have failed to love God supremely in our hearts and to love others like we love ourselves. And the truth is that no one knows the extent of our sinfulness except God. It's deeper than any of us can fathom. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Are you still with me? The picture is so far pretty bleak. So that's the bad news. Who wants some good news? The point of these first three verses is to make us feel hopeless and to understand that it's going to take resurrection power to save us. Full-blown spiritual resurrection. If we don't remember what we've been saved from, then we forget our need for a saviour and we won't cherish him. This seemingly bad news only serves to emphasize the wonder of God's remedy in the next section. Paul begins to describe or paint the marvelous picture that our new identity is like if you're in Christ. And I can tell you, if you can get this, this will change everything. Your identity is no longer who you think you are. It's what God thinks you are in union with Christ. So let's read this, verse 4. But God... As an aside, my father-in-law told me that once he made the mistake of talking about the ver- this verse as one of the big butts of the Bible and realized pretty quickly that he'd made a mistake. So, but I'm sure you guys are a lot more mature than that. Um, verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If you don't think of kindness when you think of God, then you don't know him. Have you ever hurt someone or wronged someone and you think the situation is dead? That there's no way back? Maybe a friend or a work colleague or even a family member. Maybe a parent. I know when I was younger, I did many things to upset my parents. And I would hide away if I'd done something wrong, try to avoid them. I feel like there's nothing I can do. I can say sorry. You know, there's shame, there's guilt for the bad things I've done. And then your parent comes to you and says they love you. They hug you, and they say, it's okay. Now, this is a dim, imperfect picture of how God has reached out to us and said, my child, I love you, and I forgive you. And when you think about it, the worse the action is, the sweeter the reconciliation is. Yeah. 
Let's look at what God has done in these verses. This is pretty great. Verse 4, God loved us. Because of his great love, the word love in Greek is agape, unconditional love. Verse 5, God gave us new life. God makes dead sinners alive. Salvation was and is a free gift from God and nothing to do with the fact that you have earned or deserve it. Verse 5 also says, God saved us. He saw us in our helpless state, unable to save ourselves, and he came to rescue us. And he raised us up and sat us with Christ in heavenly places. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Wouldn't you agree? Hallelujah. Now, I don't know about you, but I do enjoy sitting. I sit all day in my job. I sit on the sofa. I sit when I'm driving. I sit when I'm on the train. Many of you are sitting right now. God seated us with Christ in heavenly places. It reflects peace. We sit when we rest. We are sat with him. Such incredible favor. Now Paul, remember, is writing to Ephesian Christians who lived in a time of worshipping Artemis and spiritual forces. Many people had idols and occult practices. And he says to them, you were enslaved... But this is your new position. You are no longer enslaved. You are seated with Christ. We have a place of authority and victory, as we were singing earlier. You are no longer defeated. When someone is sat down, usually their work has been finished. It's a picture of work being finished. There is a sense of rest and a sense of victory. We are now seated. So... What perspective should we therefore have? We go into life with a victory perspective. This is not so much about us being seated up there, as if heaven is spatially above us, but it's about us being exalted with him to a position of authority. It means we now share in the authority given to Jesus, since in him we now sit on the throne of the universe. That's pretty cool. Even though we still live bodily on earth, we have ascended with Jesus spiritually to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It means that we have immediate access to God the Father, and it means that we can be certain that all of our prayers are heard because we have the ear of God, and he therefore cannot fail to hear us. Who watched the coronation last week? Anyone try to go to London, crazy people? Uh, We watched a bit of it, but um, now obviously not many were invited, and I'm confident to say that no one in this room got an invitation, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But how many would have loved to have been invited? To have been in the presence of the king? And how many would love to be able to travel in the, the golden carriage and go up onto the royal balcony? My point is, there is privilege or authority associated with knowing the king. You get access to new powers, new opportunities that you didn't before. And this is the same for us. There is authority in knowing the true king who reigns on high above all kings. We receive the same authority that Jesus was given. We also have authority over negative spiritual forces. So we are now no longer to be negatively fearful or dominated by spiritual powers that have once enslaved us. I feel like some here today need to be reminded of this. 
and be released from negative spiritual forces. If that is you today, then we would love to pray with you after the service. But because of his great love and his rich mercy, it takes these two things to make us alive. That's what's happened if you are a Christian. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive with Christ. We were captive to the prince of the power of the air and enslaved to this course of this world. But God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We were children of wrath and deserving of eternity in the torments of hell. But God, instead of pouring out wrath, he will spend eternity showing the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. (laughs) This is my story. This is your story. And if you're hearing this for the first time, there is hope. This can be your story today. When I think about what my life would be like without Christ, it's, it's pretty scary. I, I dread to think what I'd be like. Fully dependent on my own cravings, loving material things, using people to get what I wanted, dependent on sex, money, drugs to make me happy. And yet in reality, feeling completely unsatisfied by all of this. But thankfully... God has saved me and made me alive with him. And then verse 7, in order that in the coming age, meaning when Jesus returns, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. This is way better than anything on this earth. They are incomparable. If you enjoy the riches and things we have on earth, which is fine to admit because I do too, then I can tell you they do not compare to the riches for you in heaven. We get a glimpse of it now in this age, but there is more to come, brothers and sisters. We should not be driven by anything we can acquire here on earth, but be driven by the incomparable riches we can store in heaven. I hope your heart is full of gratitude at these verses. So, so far, we've covered the extent of our ruin, the wonder of God's remedy, and finally, we're going to cover the demand for a response. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. This, if you notice, is the second time Paul has said this in this passage. First in verse 5, and now in verse 8, which would suggest it's quite important. Now, I learned that grace can be summarized as God's riches at Christ's expense. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Faith is the evidence that we have been raised from the dead. Not by works, so that no one can boast. If you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus, it is not a result of works or a reward for anything you've done. It cannot be earned. Even salvation is something we cannot boast in because it was all God's grace to us. It is the gift of God. Salvation is God's gift. Who here likes to receive gifts? Anyone's birthday coming up? Get anything nice coming on? Well, Abby, my wife, is, uh, loves to give gifts. And I can tell you she does give pretty good gifts. And I always want to get her better gifts, not because... I'm competitive. Um, But Abby does give great gifts, but I can tell you God's are better. 
And then we have this amazing verse, verse 10, which says, we are God's handiwork or workmanship, some translations say. Dave Smith in the book says, the word workmanship has a sense of being a poem, a work of art, a masterpiece, something of exquisite design and wonder. Now, I'm not very creative, but I do appreciate creative people and things that they create. When we create something, whether it's a piece of art or an intricately designed sculpture or a wonderful piece of music or an amazing film, we enjoy it, but we are in awe of the artist, the one who came up with it, the one who created it from nothing. Psalm 139 verse 14 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The glorious truth is that we are God's masterpiece, his greatest work. Do you know this? This makes us hugely valuable and is key to understanding our new identity. Let me tell you, your value is based on who made you. Your worth now is based on the fact that Jesus Christ came and paid the ultimate price for you. And the Father, when you came to Christ, did a miracle. He raised you up and he seated you with Christ and he somehow recreated you spiritually and said, now you are my masterpiece. You belong to me. Your identity and worth is based on how much I value you. And when people see our new life in Christ, how we were made alive by him, then they will be in awe of the one who did it. It's all for his glory. Paul says, we are created in Christ. This is another way of saying made alive. When you became a Christian, a new creature or being was created. God said, let there be a new creation let there be Al, the new, Sophie, the new, Wes, the new, Matt, the new, Rob, the new. If you're a Christian here today, unsure of what your purpose is, then this verse tells us we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There are things to do in life, many good things that we are created to do. I believe we all have different tasks and good things to do. But whatever you do, we must do it for the glory of God. It could be serving God in your workplace, looking out for a neighbor in need, bringing up your children to be evangelists in their school, trying to make the world a fairer place. And I know there are many people in this room who are making sacrifices for others on a daily basis looking after elderly family members, looking to invite vulnerable children into their homes, studying for their GCSEs or degree for the Lord. And I know there'll be so many more across Redeemer that we're not even aware of. These are great examples of good works. John Piper says, you must get out and do good works, whatever God is asking you to do. And when you've done them through faith, you say, he did, and give him the glory. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 
The response is a fruitful life that brings God glory. People knew we were dead, but then made alive in Christ to do good works. It's all for his glory. Paul, in another letter to the Corinthians, says, this is in chapter 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Friends, let us work hard for the glory of God. And then when we're done, we say, as Paul says, yet not I, but by the grace of God that was with me. So in summary, these verses in Ephesians, the message from Paul today, can be summarized as we were dead, made alive with Christ in order to do good works. Hopefully, this is good news and something to celebrate and also something for us to work on and a challenge for everyone. If you want to know more about the good works and what living a transformed life looks like, then This will be a specific focus when we cover future uh, chapters in Ephesians. So come back to hear more. But as I come to finish, and maybe the band can start to come back up, I am aware of a need to respond to this. Some here today may be feeling spiritually dead and want to be made alive. Some may have been Christians for a while, but are still living as those that are spiritually defeated, as if you are still enslaved. The start of freedom is revelation. We need a revelation, a fresh revelation of God and what he's done for us. We can pray that God will give you a new revelation. Some will need to repent for things in their life which have not been pleasing to God, where we've been harboring a spirit of disobedience. You might feel... I'm in this room for a reason, hearing this word about how needy I am. God, if you're talking to me, it sounds pretty right. I know myself. You've softened me. I don't want to resist anymore. I submit and I'm done. John 5 says, very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. We need to be reminded that Jesus is the only one who delivers us, saves us, and rescues us. Some may be struck by the need to do good works and the call to live a life that is changed or transformed. What is God asking you to to do today? My prayer is that God would make each of us alive today, fully alive, to do good works and give him the glory as we do. So we're going to do some commu- go to communion in a bit, but before, we're going to respond in some worship and sing some songs where we can declare God's goodness to us, that he has made us alive to do good works. So let us respond now in worship.